All right, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure, and this is episode four of our podcast. And we're going to be discussing today is uh, my journey back to India in 2007 to 2009, when I went back to India to pursue my Fulbright to understand the interconnections between Eastern and Western medicine. But we're not really going to focus on the research side, I said, because I, I think I've spoken about that. And we may do that in another podcast. But more what happened when I was trying to leave India in 2009, um, after being appointed by the Prime Minister's office in India to run the largest innovation center in India. And uh, the journey I went through, um, as someone who went there uh, very sincerely to want to help India, when I was uh, given this appointment, which I'll talk about, and the fact that when I exposed a corruption to try to try to um, really rectify matters, how I was uh, uh, literally forced out of India, had to come back home, and uh, recognize what we'll talk about the feudal system in India, the caste system uh, in a new version exists in these organizations. In many ways, coming to the realization that um, in, in many ways, India is actually much more honest about corruption where, versus America is not. And uh, you'll hear me talk about in this podcast how the average American politician um, is on an order of magnitude so far more corrupt than the average Indian politician. But in India, the corruption is much more open. And so you see the corruption, but in America, we're all bamboozled to think that we live in this environment where our, um, you know, where um, the political system is not so corrupt as in, quote unquote, other third world countries. But in fact, our, our corruption is highly sophisticated. Yeah, and that's very similar in other third world countries as well, right? The corruption is actually very well known. Um, yeah, the citizenry is much more aware of corruption. Yeah. In America, people have been manipulated um, in a false way to put so much respect on their um, academic leaders, on their political leaders, you know, on their corporate leaders, and their military leaders, when they actually all collude together. Yeah. So that, that's what I think we're going to really cover. So um, I think, Marcel, you had asked earlier, why don't I talk first about sort of... Um, how you know what sort of drove me to even go back to India? Uh, I mean, I could have stayed in India by the, uh, at that time in 2007. I was appointed to this very prestigious role and probably uh, kept kept my mouth shut. And uh, as my father-in-law at that time said, could have, would have been become the minister of science. But I think it was something always in me. I think I shared in podcast one that never felt uh, right about um, that there were such disparities in the world. You know, between justice and injustice, between truth and those people who manipulated it. Yeah, I remember you were talking about you, you as a little boy going back to India and seeing all these injustices and uh, people living in very poor conditions. And you questioned that while the people around you were, were just like, oh, no, this is how things are. That's just how it is. And you yeah. and little kid were kind of mad about that, right? Well, yeah, I, I think, well, first was before I went back, even when I was a kid, I was around five years old. And my dad and my mom, you know, who'd struggled themselves, uh, were in Bombay. And one of my dad's college friends had come by to visit him. And I, I think at that time I spent four or five. And his um, college friend was talking about, this is in India, by the way, in Bombay, how that there were these people who were taking up arms in the villages um, to try to get food and basic shelter. Uh, and they were overthrowing these huge landlords. And I, I said, well, I said, that sounds like a good thing to do. Yeah, and this guy freaked out, and he and he told my he sort of really freaked out because I think he came from a very very uh, big landed family somewhere yeah. in South India, 
So I was basically saying it was okay to take up arms to <laughs> fight for your basic rights. So he told, you know, my dad, your, your son's a communist. And my dad said, oh, don't worry, he'll change. But I've never changed in terms of my distaste for that kind of massive differences. Or for that matter, you know, a, a reckless disregard for people who actually do work hard. We're not talking about people in those conditions who are just sort of, I don't know, just lumpins. You know, just not doing work, you know, just hanging out. These people actually worked. Yeah. And in spite of that, they could never move forward. So um, so that was my first uh, uh, sort of, I guess, experience. And then the experience of being exposed to India's caste system where I, you know, I was playing with, with, a, with a kid who was my friend and went to his home and they were, quote unquote, Brahmins. And the mother wouldn't let me into his home, which I thought was weird, had me stay out. And gave me water in a very different cup. Segregation, as you, you would think about in the U.S., you know. Yeah. Uh, blacks over here, whites over here. And that's still normal in India now, right? Well, you know, it's... It, it, I mean, we'll talk about this. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, it's normal to the extent that the caste system exists, right? And it's sort of... Um, um, the fact that I'm talking about this, a guy like me is not even supposed to talk about this. Indians don't want this to be talked about. Really? Yeah, they don't want because it's embarrassing to them. They want to always talk about how great the Indian culture is. You know, it has a rich history. Yeah. But these are one of the things they do not want to talk about. And um, so that was my other personal experience. And when I told my mom about that incident as a kid, she goes, when she used to go to the well, which I talked about, they used to chase her away as though she was a pig or something, some swine coming and use like the N words to say, get away. Like, you guys can't come here to the well when we're around, which means the Brahmins. Yeah. So it was basically that. You know, these very, you know, on a day-to-day basis, those kinds of behavior is what got me interested in, you know, the political side of life. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, so I came to the United States. You know, we always, um, in those days, were in very working-class neighborhoods in Patterson and Clifton and Persephone. You know, our friends and my mentors were school teachers and, you know, plumbers and electricians who taught me a lot. And then in 77... We came here in 1970 to the United States. I went back to India, and that's when I really saw the stark difference yeah. between all the infrastructure we had here. It's almost when you see the difference. Here, my aunt was living in a small hut, you know, uh, you know, and then dis- and in fact, the disparities in my own family. My dad somehow had made it out of India, became an engineer. He had a brother, became a doctor, but the other six kids on his side were, you know, like cement factory workers. Two of them were not working. One of them had a son who was a drunk, you know. Uh, you know, the whole gamut within that one family because people had made certain decisions in their lives or got fortunate to meet certain people. Yeah. So that never made sense to me. So I, that's when I made a decision that I would not only be a good student, but understand why this worked and try to change things. Yeah. So, you know, when I was at MIT, I think I've talked about this throughout my college life, even until today, you know, running for U.S. Senate in this past 2018 election has been a complete, you know, there, it's been an unbroken uh, link to those incidents. Yeah. It, it hasn't changed. In fact, that's what drives me even, to, I mean, uh, to do science or engineering. Yeah, I think those, they say that's one of the most impactful uh, years in your life is like two to seven or something around there. The formative periods, yeah. The formative yeah. Period. So it's sort of burned into my operating system. Yeah. So, you know, when I was at MIT, we started a student newspaper called The Student, with a fist was our logo. And it was a single-page newsletter before the internet, before blogs. And I would argue that's probably more effective than even this because you would interconnect with people. We'd pass out. We'd print it on our own ink with old 
typesetting in a guy's basement in Dorchester. And we distribute these flyers. And they addressed issues, what was going on at MIT and in the world. And it, it was started after a black dean at MIT was fired, who was brought in to ensure that MIT was actually living up to its promise of being a truly inclusive, diverse university. You know, the, the civil rights movement of the 1960s forced the establishment to throw some bones to the masses. One of them was affirmative action. It wasn't the actual cure, but nonetheless, it was a gain of all those people who fought. Yeah. And it allowed people who'd been screwed over to come to places like MIT. However, when they got to places like MIT, these initially these students in the late 60s and early 70s, it was a setup because they could never make it through the four years because the schools that they came from, the high schools, didn't teach them calculus, didn't teach them analytic geometry. So they sort of perfunctory, mechanical way let them in, knowing that they were going to fail and they could say, see these poor whites, blacks, Hispanics, they're stupid. They couldn't make it. So those students fought. So from the very start, it was meant to to, make them look bad at the end of the day. But those young students were smart. When, when the few of them got in, they realized this and they took over the faculty club like at MIT and they demanded MIT set up programs to do what the infrastructure in those inner cities should have done. And this woman, Dean Hope, interesting name, was brought in, Mary Hope, to implement what's called the Office of Minority Education to implement those programs. When Reagan came in, they started going after 20 years later after these programs to get rid of them because the establishment never really wanted it, you know, they were just saying it was a waste of money. Waste of money, so they wanted to get rid of them. So her firing was sort of what um, me and another activist friend of mine, Arnold Contreras, saw as the first step in the direction of a not only getting, forget affirmative action, but basically the establishment's onslaught on um, people. Yeah. Poor blacks, poor whites, inner city, you know. And these were gains from the civil rights movement. So we started the student, and at that same time is when we also recognized, you know, when we saw Jesse Jackson sell out to the Democrats and the Republicans, that both parties were the same. So our politics were anti-establishment. They were quite sophisticated for 19-year-old, you know, I was 19, I think Arnold, I was 18, Arnold was 19. Uh, Anti-establishment, we learned a a lot from uh, really reading Marx and Lenin. I'm not talking about these, the alt-right version of what they think Marx is, or the uh, the fake left version of Marx or Lenin. I mean, Marx did a very deep dive analysis of capital. Yeah, because, I mean, you've said this before, like a lot of the people that critique him nowadays, um, they haven't really read the full book. They haven't read, they haven't, I mean, I've read Capital. I've read the works of Marx. I've read pretty much all of Lenin stuff. And they didn't get everything right. But for their time, these guys were looking 200 years out. Yeah. And the fake left, Democratic Socialists of America, ACORN, they have actually tried to overtake Marx. um, And then the fake right attacks Marx. So one attacks, one doesn't really, has revised Marx, has tried to sap the real essence of Marxism out, which is the left, the fake left. And the right is attacking Marx without even knowing what the hell he said. So they're both just like, you know, skimming in the cloud somewhere. But what Karl Marx really talked about was ultimately, if you really read the first chapters of Das Kapital, was that uh, the essence of being a human being. And the essence of being a human being was you have dreams. I have dreams. And the idea should be that each, both of us should be able to pursue our dreams and um, with, without any intermediaries. In many ways, it was quote unquote true liberal philosophy. 
Yeah. Meaning the same liberal philosophy that the founders of the United States espoused. There's a creator. You should be able to, you know, the concept of there, it was a spiritualism of Marxism. There, There is part of that. That's what Marx was really talking about. And then from that thesis, Marx was actually uh, understanding what was money. You know, what is money? And, and then he traced it back to systems of production. Yeah. And going all the way back to hunter-gatherer societies. When there was a time when there was no ownership of property, the way we produce stuff was through hunter hunting and gathering. And the form of government, because the means of production, we were nomads, was not, there was no king. There was no U.S. Senate, right? There was no democracy, you know, what Marx called bourgeois democracy or feudalism. It was basically what he called primitive communism. Yeah. It was flat society. People, you know, the women, if they could gather, they did that. Child reeling, the men went and... I mean, it was not anything men were better, women were better. But it was basically based on biology. And people worked together. You know, there was no hierarchy. Decentralized. Decentralized, small village communities. No coercion. No coercion, right. So Marx was saying that, that when we were in that state, and there was no property ownership, they didn't have an idea of what property was. So, so by the way, the remnants of that, so Marx based that analysis on the work of actually an American anthropologist called Henry Morgan, which people forget. Okay. Henry Morgan was a foundational basis of the work of Marx and Engels in the, in the very initial classic book called Family, State, and Private Property. And in that book, Marx essentially and Engels um, laid out the fact that there were these primitive hunter-gatherer societies. They were, many of them were matriarchal. Yeah. Um, and, and that was for practical reasons. Management of the affairs of the village or were easier left to women because the men had to go and hunt and do other things. So they took care of the governance of things. And lineage was through women. Because before, uh, and, and because if you think about it, in nature, you could have five different lions uh, have sex with a single female. The lineage is not from any male. It's from that woman. Because yeah. you don't know which sperm got into that woman. Okay, yeah. So in many of these societies, there were uh, polygynous societies, not polygamy. The woman had many lovers. In I fact, in, uh, so in Henry Morgan's work, he looked at the Iroquois, which were the people of the, the Native Americans. And he also looked at another group called the Dravidians of Tamil Nadu, where I'm from, interestingly enough. So the Tamilians of South India and the Native Americans of the Americas had very similar familial, in fact, exact familial relationships. Um, um, but more importantly, they were matriarchal. Hunter, and they didn't have, the, like in Tamil, you, you never t- tell people, come to my home. You say, come to Nama home, Nama vide. Nama means our home. Yeah. Everything was like our. It wasn't like this was like the the, the stupid guys on the alt-right. Oh, um, they're into non... No, it wasn't even... You, you, they don't understand the gist of it. There was, just like um, the Native Americans, they can't understand why the white man would say, I want to own the moon. It's like, what are you talking about? You can't own stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right? So that was that sense. It's all of ours. You know, yeah. it's not like... They were into like collectivization and of the Chinese and, you know, that's what these guys, no, this was just a natural, it was a natural law thing that we all live together, you know, and yeah, how, sure. what do you mean own it's stuff? part of human right. nature, yeah. Right, and people moved to hunting and gathering, so you never stayed in one place. So Marx was very insightful in bringing out this concept that the mode of production 
is what drives the kinds of political systems and economic systems we create. So he basically said when we had hunter-gatherer societies where we moved and we were nomadic and our the way we sustained ourselves through hunting and gathering, the political systems were primitive communism, flat structures. Anarcho-communism as well. Yeah, th- those kind of structures. Yeah. And um, the... Um, uh, uh, you know, the uh, economic system, well, the political system was a flat structure. Yeah. And the political system was, there was no private property, right? And then Marx argued somewhere, and it's not, none of this is exactly linear, you know, somewhere the mode of production changed because we created tools, a plow, the ability to domesticate animals. Yeah. Those technologies took society from one system state, as we talked about in episode two, you know, there were the interconnections and relationships between humans yeah. were not based on, you know, I own you, I own this land, and you work for me. The, the, the relationships were based on survival and friendships, right? Yeah. Um, those kinds of things. So those relationships led to those structures. But the day that we created, and I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here, the day that we created the plow and we started farming, that was the same day um, private property got created. So, because now you could say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to move around and hunt and stuff. I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to raise some chickens. I'm going to domesticate animals. So, I didn't have to hunt and gather anymore. Yeah. So, you created a plot of land that you said, I own this. Yeah, one person puts a flag. And yeah, says, and Mar- you land. said, Marcelo said, you know, you said, I own this. Because I was the first one that saw this land. I'm right. And I, but but more importantly, the mode of production had changed. Yeah. Right? You, you didn't have to hunt and gather. You physically stayed in that place. And and around that you plowed, you got your you started doing grains and all this other kinds of stuff, and you started um, domesticating animals. Those were the two key things. Now, what Marx said was when that happened, the dynamics of the system changed, yeah. because now the relation was you had property. It was a big thing, and you had the concept of a feudal system. I became the lord of my land. You became the lord of your land. And as that progressed, then I hired people to till my land. I became the king. These people became the serfs. And so basically the political system was feudalism, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, I mean the economic system was feudalism and the political system was a monarchy. Yeah. You had little chiefs and uh, owners. That's really... I mean, mm-hmm. And all of this didn't occur like exactly at one point. There was overlap too. You had... Um, uh, in the earlier system, you had small villages where a king was not a guy who was a king, but he essentially protected the borders, okay? It was still very local egalitarian systems, yeah. Greece everywhere. So, but when, when the transition there took place, um, was the same day Marx argued that the subjugation of women took place. Because when you said, I own this land, then you were like, shit, I'm, now I'm 90 years old, you know, and who's gonna own my land? Oh, you um, will now be my son, the heir, and you will get my last name. So the concept of last name comes. So like in deep South India and in Tamil Nadu or in the Iroquois, they don't have last names. It's like sunflower. You know, my name is actually Shiva, right? My dad's name was Ayodure. Yeah. We didn't have a last name. We had to create a last name. So when we came to this country, I had to put Ayodure after Shiva. Okay. So it's Shiva Ayodure. But in India, it would just be a Shiva, Shiva son of Ayodure. See what I'm saying? So the whole, it's fascinating. And then Mark said, okay, that went by over many thousands of years. 
And then another tool got created, the steam engine, and the ability to move things and manufacturing things. Now we went from feudal society, which was based on feudalism and the monarchy as a political system, to another system because now that was the emergence in the 15-1600s of traders. People started moving around and trading. It was the emergence of the early entrepreneur. Yeah. And that moved society and we had ability to move new technologies. That moved people from feudal society and that's when the 15, 16, 17, you start seeing the decline of the monarchs and the rise of what you call, what Marx called bourgeois democracies. So now you gave people, quote unquote, representative government, right? So that representative government um, allowed people uh, to think that they had some representation, yeah. right? So the system moved to what we call democracy, quote unquote, democracy. And then the system moved to... Uh, the economic system was called capitalism. And so, and, and then Marx using that predicted, so anyway, I learned this as a, uh, at MIT, there was all these Marxist Leninists around and I got very int interested in this. But the key thing I learned was the Democrats and Republicans were one and the establishment was one. So the student activism was really around that. Yeah. You know, that's where it really um, centered around. And the other thing was, so our politics were anti-war, you know, uh, anti the military industrial academic complex. Um, we recognize, and we would, so at, at MIT, with those politics, we just didn't do liberal left politics. You know, we did anti-establishment politics. Yeah. And, and um, those anti-establishment politics, I think I want to discuss a little bit of, you know, how we looked at a couple of different areas at MIT. And that sort of was my training Yeah. Um, at MIT. So the anti-establishment politics went like this, um, that we recognized that the Democrats and Republicans were working together. And that came out of the fact in 1983, 1984, um, you may remember that that was when Reagan was running for office against a guy called Walter Mondale. So Reagan, Republican Walter Mondale was a Democrat. I, but there was this other guy called uh, Jesse Jackson who was running under this, what appeared to be, and we'll, we'll learn about what's called the not-so-obvious establishment, called the Rainbow Party. And Jackson was using his aura, you know, that he was with Martin Luther King and blah, 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 and the civil rights. And so he started this thing called the Rainbow Party. Yeah. But, and we were all excited. We said, oh, maybe he's going against his... I mean, there was something in young people who doesn't like the establishment. You know, we were young, 17, 18-year-olds. Um, you know, I had read a lot of revolutionary literature. So I said, well, maybe... Jesse Jackson's going to disrupt stuff. So there was like an anti-establishment movement back then? Yes, in yeah, yeah. So that's what the Rainbow Party was. Yeah, okay. But interestingly enough, on the floor of the Democratic Convention, um, at the very last minute, I mean, he's he was building up a force. He says, oh, Reagan is so bad. This is how the story goes, right? The lesser of two evils. I'm going to give all my delegates to uh, Walter Mondale. Yeah. And people are booing him. And that's when I realized um, that there was the establishment, the change agents, real change agents, revolutionaries, and then there were people even more insidious like Jesse Jackson called the not-so-obvious establishment. You see, he was basically the left testicle of the Democratic Party. That's what he really was. Seems very similar to Bernie Sanders. I hate to use the word, but that's what he is, meaning the, 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 the right, the Republicans also have their right version of that, yeah. you know? 
seems very similar to the Bernie Sanders movement today, where exactly he thought he was actually anti-establishment, but then he sided with Hillary Clinton at the end of the day, right? Exactly. So what's what's interesting there is uh, having gone through that as a 17, 18 year, old, you know, in twenty whatever was it? When did Hillary Clinton run? Twenty sixteen. Yeah. The twenty sixteen election, Bernie's running, and I had a friend of mine, Lori, who's your your typical white liberal, you know, a nice person. And she was like, Shiva, you need to vote for Bernie. I go, look, Bernie's going to do to you exactly what Jesse Jackson did in 1984. And she hadn't read any history. This, you know, yeah, A lot of people are just very naive, all excited about Bernie. And I said, he's going to give all of his votes, his delegates, to Hillary Clinton because he's going to say that Trump or whoever is a you know better of two evils. Yep. And she goes, Bernie will never do that. He has principles. He will never do that. I said, that's what he's going to do. And, and I said, what you should do is you should really look at building an anti-establishment movement if you want to get involved. I said, and I was very vehemently against electoral politics. And so, lo and behold, that's what happens. Yep. And the Ber- Bernie Sanders people split because, you, look, when you look at it from an engineering standpoint, you have to understand there are principles. There's the establishment, then there are the real people who are anti-establishment. But the establishment is so wicked smart or clever, they create another force called the not-so-obvious establishment to sucker revolutionaries into that anti-establishment movement, into the into the quasi-anti-establishment, because then at the last minute to bring them back to one of their candidates. Yeah. Now in Massachusetts, the same thing happened when uh, people when I was running against Warren, the right did it. You know, the right Republicans created their right testicle called Jeff Deal. Yeah. yeah. You know, bogus guy photoshopped a picture with Trump, and he was existed to create the not so obvious establishment of the mass GOP to take all the Trumpers, who many of them were independents, thinking back into the fold of the mass GOP and basically uh, try to keep me out because yeah. I was a truly the change agent revolutionary candidate. So you, you think this is calculated? From it's calculated. Yeah. It's, it's, it's totally organized. Look, you have to understand these people, you know, one mile from my home here in Belmont and Cambridge, they have the Kennedy School of Government. They have theoreticians. They sit around. They know yeah. what they're doing. People listening to this podcast should recognize that the establishment is quite smart. And this is not conspiracy. They, they understand systems theory. They understand systems dynamics. They understand which gears and levers to create. They understand marketing very, very well. They understand yeah. marketing. In fact, yeah, they understand marketing and they understand that it's an engineering system. You need certain levers. So, by the way, the same thing occurred in India. Gandhi is not a revolutionary. He's completely f- a fiction made up. To manipulate people. So if you look at India in the 1920s, you know, the British came in India, 1757, started occupying India, doing the same thing they were doing here. By the 1920s, a revolutionary movement was building in India. People said, let's kick these guys out like the American revolutionaries did. So what did the, so you had these change agents coming up. You had on the other extreme, the establishment, which was a British empire. So what did the British do? They find this guy called Gandhi, parachute him in because Gandhi was supposedly fighting for the South Africans in South Africa when actually he did not that much for them. He was trying to help the wealthy Hindus trying to get trading rights. And then they recharacterize him as some civil rights leader. Yeah. He comes to India. He gets embraced by a guy who was an Anglophile, loved the British, and they remake him to be the safety valve. So they didn't want these radical revolutionary Indians throwing out the British. So they created a thing called the Indian National Congress. Let the darkies have their little parliament. 
you know, let them haggle things out. It was like the safety valve. And Gandhi's friend Gokhale was the organizer of it. And so what you see is over the next 27 years, 1947, they have so-called Indian independence. And what they did was they used this not so obvious establishment, AKA Jesse Jackson, AKA Bernie Sanders, AKA Mahatma Gandhi, to quell the revolutionary movement. And what you have is a British white men with crowns leave India, and then they transfer power to brown men with white hats. Yep, okay. That's what happened. And in fact, that's why Indian corruption became so deep. They never got rid of the systemic injustices. They simply transferred it to even harsher, I would say, slave masters. Yeah. So this is how it works. So so anyway, I had, when I was a, a, a freshman at MIT, I'd read a lot of this, figured it out. Uh, and then here I saw on campus, you know, the Jesse Jackson event, I mean, not on campus, nationally taking place. And so that's what, in, in a very way, we became an anti-establishment activist. And so I'll give you an example how we differed from the liberals or the establishment. So there was the apartheid movement. You know, here in the 80s, it was a big thing. South Africa was shooting students who were protesting South African apartheid. Apartheid, by the way, means the separation of blacks and whites. In South Africa, it was, it was much harsher than anything in the United States. In South Africa, 3% of the whites ruled over 97% of the black Africans. Yeah. And so in, in, in that movement, you, you know, we were as young people hearing, um, you know, rebellions taking place, how the South African army would go and start just shooting people. So obviously we were moved. So on, in those days, um, universities like MIT, liberal universities had stock investments in South African companies. So there, a movement arose to say, you know, these companies, why are they supporting these big companies? And there were some arguments around that. So the established people said, oh, they're helping the blacks over there. We're sending money there. And the, and the so-called left yeah. would say, oh, we shouldn't be doing this. So it was this it was called the divestment discussion. And many of these lefties who were fighting against the righties were, you know, trust fund kids. You know, some of them were liberal, well-meaning kids. Their politics weren't sophisticated. But to them, they were helping. So there were protests at MIT to tell MIT to get their money out. But to them, it was a, it was a problem 10,000 miles away, right? Yeah. It was very in vogue to say, oh, I'm an anti-apartheid activist. So what we looked at and we said, well, that's interesting. But what about apartheid right on campus? Like these people who are talking about wanting to help the darkie or the black guy in South Africa, none of them would even go into Dorchester yeah. or Roxbury, right? These were predominantly African-American areas in Boston. And for, for, for that matter, none of them used to talk to the poor food service workers or the janitors who MIT was screwing over. So we said, yeah, we too are against apartheid, but let's talk about apartheid from Boston to Soweto. So we, you see, we gave a very different anti, so we wanted to make people accountable. It's not just a liberal thing. So the liberals had their slogan, which was no to apartheid. And we ended up building shanty towns right in the center of the MIT Student Center you know, like we put up these structures which look like shanty towns from South Africa. Yeah, okay. But, and then I led a protest starting from Boston University up Com Ave over the Mass Ave Bridge to MIT. And as we're doing that protest, you know, so you had really the liberals, like people like DSA Acorn who'd infiltrated the movement and were trying to control it. Like they knew what it meant to be left. So they would sing songs like We Shall Overcome, you know or no to apartheid. And to us, we wanted, we were a lot more radical. Yeah. 
we had our newspaper, The Student, we started distributing these buttons which says death to apartheid. Because you have to understand, we weren't just being radical because the situation in South Africa was heating up. This was not like no to apartheid, something bland. So as we're marching, they're singing these stupid songs. We took up a slogan, apartheid in South Africa, burn it to the ground. And everyone loved it because it wasn't like we were being violent. We were expressing the real anger people had in that protest. Yeah. But liberals, so the, so the three liberal organizers came running to us saying, you can't say that. That sounds too violent. Stop saying that. And meanwhile, 5,000 people are loving this chant. Yeah. And they're saying, we can't say this. And I said, who do, you, who do you mean we? So what you notice there is liberals try to contain movements. They try to police movements. They don't want movements to get too movementy yeah. out of their hands. So you saw that right there, how liberals, so they were doing that little backroom discussion. We're like, why don't you tell, why don't you ask people which slogan they like? And no one wanted to take up their stupid no to apartheid. They liked apartheid in South Africa, burn it to the ground because we were expressing the real anger yeah. of the South African people. And by the way, this occurred in the 60s movement too. You had these counterculture people like Abby Hoffman when the movement was exploding against the war in Vietnam, they would try to quell it down, right? So the not so obvious establishment is the liberals. They never want the masses in their own crude way to take control of movements. They always want to contain it. So that's a big lesson we learned in a practical way. And this was after protest after protest. It was us, obviously the establishment, and our real enemy ended up becoming the liberals. Because yeah. they always were trying to tell people how much they knew better than them, how we should not use certain words, you know, you know trying to... Uh, 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 so, for example, our student newsletter was very, very funny. So, for example, Reagan was cutting student loans, left and right. And... Uh, his quote-unquote opposition was Tip O'Neill, who was the Democrat House Majority Leader, a minority leader. Tip O'Neill's from Boston. He was a, so, but O'Neill also supported all the Ra Reagan uh, student loan cuts. So I remember one time we were writing our newsletter, and in the newsletter we said, why doesn't, you know, we said, you know, Reagan has put student loans on the chopping block. Perhaps Tip should put his tip on the chopping block. <laughs> And people just and people are like, oh, you can't say that, you know. Yeah. But well, it was it was what you would call trolling today. It's almost going back to the very beginning that um, the, a lot of these people have way too much respect for politicians and people in charge that they're afraid to actually. Well, well many of them come from them. bourgeois backgrounds. Yeah. They're bougies, you know, and many of these kids have these long hair, and right when graduation came, they'd cut their hair and they'd be on Wall Street. Okay. Because to them, being in politics was something in vogue. It wasn't real, really. Yeah. None of this was real to them. For me, it was real. For my friends who were poor Hispanics, poor blacks, poor whites from the inner cities, that's who came, were attracted to the student. This stuff was real because they knew one generation away that they had people who suffered. But for them, it's a game. Right? It's a game. It's, a, it's, it's like, isn't this nice? Let's help the dark man 10,000 miles away. But I was living in, you know, Dorchester at the time. So, you know, and I came from villages in India and I'd seen poverty all over Bombay and I came from Patterson and Newark. So these things were different. You see what I'm saying? So the not so obvious establishment, to them, politics is something you do like it's a Hollywood celebrity thing. 
And then you go back home and then you party and you drink your wine and your champagne. You see yeah, what I'm saying? They don't think of the bigger consequences behind they don't, it. They don't think about it. But you saw all that in this whole MIT community. But our student newspaper, one leaflet, one eight and a half by 11 thing printed by us, done by us, would compete with the student, official student newspaper, which was called The Tech. They had funding from the university, 52 pages, you know, 30 pages. But that little newspaper, the politics of that were what was powerful. It was like a nuclear weapon because we were saying to hell with the Democrats and Republicans. In fact, Henry Kissinger, that warmonger, one time came into Boston to speak at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. We put out 10,000 of those and he canceled. And in a, really? I wish I could find this in the Boston Globe. He said, because of the abuse I've received in the student, <laughs> I will not be coming. So that so it was politics that matter. The messaging and the strength of our politics, which was break with the Democrats and Republicans. It almost seems like that was a stronger movement back then than it, than it is now. The, well, well, what we're seeing now is the Trump movement has the characteristics of anti-establishment. The problem is the Trumpers need to recognize that they are actually anti-establishment. Yeah, they are not anti-Democrat or anti-liberal because what the what the Republicans want to do is they want to use the Trumpers and sucker them back into the Republican Party. Yep, probably after Trump's done, right. just like you're saying, the not so obvious. Just exactly. So, so they, so whenever independent movements come either on the left or the right, they always create their group or their coalition to sucker them back in. And this is what people need to understand. So the left and the right, they are very tight wings called the Republican Democratic Party, but then they have another wing, a little bit looser wing called the not so obvious establishment wing of the Republicans and the and the wing of the Democrats. They use the Tea Party in a sense for a while. Yeah, they did. Yeah. To sucker in people, yeah. said some radical stuff, but now it's become part of the establishment. And the left uses organizations like Democratic Socialists of America, and they have a number of them. Okay? Yeah. Um, Bernie Sanders being one of them, right? So that's what I learned as a student activist. I mean, I could get into deep. We, we made sure food service workers got treated better, you know? Uh, we made sure more women came. At that time, there were 25% were women. You know, now there's 50%. But even on the women's issues, we just didn't talk. We recognized there were class differences. Yeah. The women's issue is not just about the women's issue, about trying to get more. There were this set of women on campus who wanted more women CEOs. Well, but they never wanted to address working class women's issues which is their health, right? The fact that they got paid less. They were just saying, oh, we should have more MIT women and CEOs. Well, that doesn't affect a lot of women. Yeah. You see, so we also brought out the class aspect of this. Um, so our politics were very powerful. All the you know janitors at MIT knew me. I mean, we were going to the base of everyday people, even on campus, and we were connecting it to the bigger issues. So our position was that these issues were not just issues that were theoretical issues, which is what student activism was about, right? Doing something to help somebody somewhere over there, not right here. But when you start addressing issues in your local community, that's when people actually start getting worried. Exactly. That's when people start getting worried because the politics now becomes real. It's not politics that's just a golf club event yeah. or, or, you know, or some event that you're doing for fun. These are actual real people and real issues. In fact, there's a guy who got involved in our campaign, Barton Van Putten. Bart uh, lives still in, uh, I think, the South End area or whatever in, in, in that uh, area of Boston. And he still remembers, like, he came to the free speech rally and he was a food service worker. From MIT? From MIT Whoa. days. And he still yeah. remembers me because I helped him. I, we fought and got his wages increased.
Okay, so he came to the rally? The free he was speech? in the rally. If you see him, he's Bart's got the big fro, and he's holding up one of the things. And he came, I mean, he's 60, probably 70, getting close to 70 now. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is what we did at MIT was quite revolutionary. It, the politics were sophisticated. We recognized. And so there was a lot of learning there. Um, but I never stopped being an activist even from then. Um, uh, I, even though I went to work and I was in and out of MIT getting different degrees in uh, 2007 when I got my PhD, you can see this. Uh, Muhammad Yunus, you know, the microloans guy was, you know, MIT always had a speaker. He's speaking, the United States had just entered Iraq. And I'm watching, there's 20,000 people. I'm sitting there with my PhD gown. And I'm saying, this is like ridiculous. No one's talking about the fact there's a war, a major war just started. You and know? this guy is the one giving the speech? Yeah, he's talking about microloans and yeah. how, bang, you know, I, I thought, I thought it was, no one's even addressing the fact that we have a major issue taking place. In the country yeah um, so I literally left my seat ran into my office got a big poster board I put us out of Iraq I hid it under my gown so when I was called by the president of MIT to give my PhD degree I pulled it out and I said us out of Iraq oh, half of the crowd <laughs> booed me and the other half of the crowd rose up and gave me a standing ovation so half of the crowd booed me and the other half of the crowd you know gave me a standing ovation yeah. that's what happened the point being that um, I felt that someone had to say something, and that was a good opportunity to do it. Did you make any national news, or well, any, the, the, like, the, the news? news the, the MIT newspaper covered it. Oh, okay. You know, but they didn't want to cover it. You know, they Did, were, what was the people's reaction when you? Uh, half of them that? started cheering, and the other half were your. Oh, why is this guy disrupting our nice? Yeah. you know our graduation well that is where you should be this is supposed to be one of the most elite universities right yeah where you're supposed to have discussion um so that's 2007 but what i'm saying is it was a it was a long history and i went back to mit to get my phd when i was 40 so i was around 43 44 then so it was a <laughs> long history of activism that's so funny. after my phd um i had gotten a fulbright a fulbright was set up by this uh, great senator called Senator Fulbright, who, so you got basically money, um, you know, spending money, travel money, a stipend, um, and I had the opportunity to go on a Fulbright to India, and, and you had to apply for it, and the goal was I was going to go back to study the integration of Eastern and Western medicine, which I've talked about in episode two. Yeah. Um, when I went to India, you know, it was, it was a great uh, time. I learned a lot, you know, made some major scientific discoveries. But when I was leaving India on June of 2009, or July, so June or July, I think June or July of 2009, um, I got a call from the Director General of what was known as the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research, CSIR. Those are the acronyms. Um, and he brought me into his office and he'd gotten word because I was. You were there for two years, right? Already. I was in India for two days, but I was going to different labs in India. I was trying to, you know, and I went to a lab. So CSIR is a national Indian organization run by the government. In fact, it's the only organization that the president, the prime minister of India is a president of that organization. Okay. okay. So be like the president. So you're it answering be, to the president. Like, well, it'd be like the president of America being the head of the National Institute of Health or the National <laughs> yeah. Science Foundation. Now, yeah. now, why was this the case was because in um, 
1947, when India, quote-unquote, got its bogus independence, uh, the, the Prime Minister of India, Nehru, felt that India really needed science and technology, so he created this thing called CSIR. And the purpose of CSIR was to unleash uh, practical innovation across India, across all different fields. Industrial innovation, like to make sure India produced products um, that could be sold you know, externally to bring in capital. Because a lot of uh, the production worldwide comes from India, right? With- well, well, this was to unleash industrial innovation, oh, industrial, right? Yeah. Because when the British left India, they had depressed Indian innovation. Remember, a lot of stuff got taken to Britain. Okay. So anyway, um, so that was what the goal was. So uh, they set up uh, 47 lab, 37 labs all across India. Labs in like uh, researching leather, aeronautics labs, you see? Okay. And each of those labs were headed by lab directors. And the goal of those, the entire purpose of CSR was to unleash innovation, 1947. So when I came to India, this is now 2007, what, 60 years? Um, there was a lot of stuff which I didn't know in the press. Uh, people really uh, saying CSR was taking billions of dollars. It hadn't produced anything. Um, in fact, um, so anyway, so in, t- in June of 2009, this guy calls me to his office and he had a whole stack of papers. He printed out my resume, everything, every, like he had done a whole like uh, secret analysis of me. He caught word that you were in the country. Yeah, because I had visited one of his labs okay. as a part of my research. And one of the directors said, hey, you should talk to this guy. And it turned out that the CSIR had set up a program called Outstanding Scientists and Technologists of Indian Origin. And they were going to select people to come, at, come, encourage people to come back to India and help for like a two to three year period. And uh, so he said, look, why don't you, why are you going back to America? Why don't you stay here and help your motherland? And I said, what, what do you mean? And, and he told me, well, he goes, you would be appointed scientist level H, which is the highest, they have, you know, the, this is bureaucracy. This is the prime minister you're talking to? Well, no, no, this is. Uh, the director general who okay. reports directly to the prime minister. Yeah. So I'm one level away from, he goes, um, you'll have to get your appointment made by the prime minister. He goes, um, but he, um, and I didn't know what he really meant. Like what, what is, like I didn't even know the immensity of this position. So he just called you up one day. He called me up any day. Yeah, well, yeah. It, said, yeah. So, so yeah. So, and this was literally two days before I was supposed to head back to the United States. So this is like the, the the federal government, right? Pretty much. It's like the like federal government. Yeah, it's like the Indian government. Yeah. You're, you're, the, so, the, and he said you would also be an additional secretary. Uh, in the additional means like you're a deputy um, level position. Again, these are positions that people wait until their sixties to get. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now you have to understand when I was in India, I had gotten married to an Indian woman. Okay, in uh, December of two thousand and eight. So you were married at that time? I was married, and I was going to bring her back with me, right? Her father uh, had been an eminent bureaucrat in the Indian government. So I didn't know. I said, look, so so what ended up happening was this director general called me in again, and he kept me at his home until 2 in the morning. And, and uh, he said, look, um, here's a letter, and he wrote out the offer letter, and he said, don't leave because my flight was leaving the next day. And so I took it to my father and he goes, oh my God, he goes, he goes, it took me until I was 60 to get a position like this. <laughs> and um, 
he said, you know, and he couldn't believe it because um, it was unheard of, you know, um, but he said, you should take it, right? So I took the position and, um, and then I was, uh, basically the idea was that uh, in the offer letter that I would become the CEO of CSIR Tech, a new spin out that would get created to do the work that CSIR, which is find innovations across the, you know, labs that CSIR had all over, all across um, nearly the 40 labs and help those scientists take their ideas. You know, these are lab things into innovation. Okay. Got it? And that, uh, and as a part of that, uh, many of these scientists needed freedom that I would be given a budget around 10 million bucks, not to me, but to do for, for helping those scientists take their innovations out. And, um, and, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, a place to stay there, uh, et cetera. Right. What was your first reaction uh, when hearing this? Were you? Um... Well, initially, I didn't know what this meant. And then people like additional secretary in the Indian government, scientists, you know, so there's all these prestige attached. But um, I never really was moved by that. But the more thing was I said, wow, this would be cool to give back to my motherland. All I could think about was my grandparents. And I felt, wow, this is like I'm coming back to my motherland to do that mission I wanted to do when I was 1977. Remember when I had gone back to India? I said, oh, now I've gotten all my degrees. I've started companies. Now I can serve. So I was, I saw it as an honor to serve. So um, You thought you would actually create real change, right? Real change, yeah. yeah. From inside, yeah. right? So uh, um, shortly after I get hired, um, they give me a home in a, a huge bungalow, you know, where all the directors are you know it's like a compound and if you go to delhi real estate so with a seven acre compound with three bungalows right so i get that you get your car you get your cook i mean it's like you're you're like royalty (laughs) yeah and uh my uh and the uh, the indian government like you were saying earlier is one of the most corrupt one of the well openly corrupt right so um American government's very corrupt. It would put to shame the Indian government, actually, the level yeah. of corruption in the U.S. government, but we see corruption more openly yeah. in America. Yeah. I mean, in India. So um, I, you know, even b- my uh, even before I was given my all my papers, I just jumped in and I started. And I laid out a plan, which was a strategic plan. Uh, it was an entrepreneurial model because what I found was across the labs of India, um, over the 70 years, they had submitted about 5,000 patents Okay, but when I looked at those patents, only maybe two percent were legitimate. There was a lot of fraud. Okay, and pay, so what happened was over those seventy years, these scientists submit patents and I'm assuming get money out of that, right? Get promotions. Okay. So what happened was the the original vision was these scientists would innovate, but what had happened was they had this promotion structure. You start at scientist level A, then you become scientist level B, C, D, E, F, G, H. Remember, I came in all the way to H. Yeah. These people take a lifetime to get to H. And how do you get to scientist level H? Well, either you submit a patent, you get approved, or you write papers, publications. Well, a lot of these publications weren't even significant publications. Because the the way a publication is good is other people cite it. So they weren't cited. And a lot of the patents were replicas of other patents. So I went through the patent. I said, there's a lot of bogus stuff here. This is just a big scam that's been going on. So you um, came up with that uh, statistic, 2 to 3% work. Yeah, it was like that. And I, and I had another guy I was working with, yeah. um, a guy called Deepak Sardana. Okay? And Deepak had come in from Australia. Okay? 
Um, I was, he came in as a consultant. I was given the title of Outstanding Scientist Technologist of Indian Origin. It was very signed off by the Prime Minister of India. So um, uh, what I did was I started realizing that there were a lot of smart people, but what had happened was the really good ideas weren't getting out because this whole thing was based on nepotism. So there were 37 lab directors. Many of them were friends of the director general or from his community, okay? Like from his region of India. Okay. All this sort of tribalism. Yeah. And if anyone actually had a good innovation, their stuff wasn't being promoted because they were jealous. Like, oh my God, that guy, may, may. I mean, all this like high school stuff, feudalism. Yeah. Okay. The old monarchs, right? So what I saw was actually a very feudal system. Because remember, the British never left India. India never had a good capitalist revolution. It went from white men with crowns, as I mentioned, brown men with white hats. And basically, there were these little kings. And I was treated, so I would go to visit a lab. And you got to understand, you go to visit a lab, they have guest houses. They're like little palaces. They have a lot of infrastructure, but nothing really significant is going on. Um, Once in a while, I would go to some lab and they were doing stuff, but the lab directors weren't encouraging them. So in my travels all over to the labs, because I found around, I think, seven or ten really good stuff that was going on. And I said, hey, we should fund these guys. And I came up with a funding model. My model was forget like writing business plans nonsense. Take your idea, get a customer. If you get one customer, I'll give you like 50 to 100K to, to that the innovators. Yeah. Then if you got more customers, I'd give you another 250K. And then you write your business plan. Write your business plan after you know how to get a customer and if people yeah. like your stuff or not. That's a very good point, yeah. It's not the Harvard Business School re- retard model of just writing business plans for this. Because 99% of the business plans are bogus. Yeah. Anyone who writes a business plan knows it's all bogus. You only can write your business plan if you actually have a product deployed and you're learning, okay? Mm-hmm. Which is basically flipping the whole model on its head. People loved it. So I would go to these labs and be auditoriums filled the night. And people said, wow, you know, you're really going to cause change here. You can't really do that in the government, that type of uh, Well, well, right what, what happens is yeah. the director general, remember, he had offered me all these things. And I'm waiting, like I'm saying, where's that $10 million fund? You, you know, it's in the op that you're going to set up so I can support these people. The reality was um, these guys were not interested. They thought I was just going to sit there, be so happy I got a bungalow in Delhi, got this amazing position, yeah. scientist level age. And in fact, my father-in-law at the time, he was seeing me get pissed off. He goes, look, don't do anything. Be really quiet. One day you'll be promoted to the Minister of Science and Technology. <laughs> like he said, just go to work. Don't do anything. Hang out and leave. That, that's what like, most government positions pretty much are, right? A lot of them. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's not me. I mean, I actually wanted yeah. to do stuff to serve the people of India. So um, halfway into this, the finance director of the entire organization, a very nice woman, she pulls me to the office. She goes, come in here. She goes, do you know they're not going to let you do anything? They don't want you to do anything. She goes, if you want to connect, go and meet people personally. So I went all over India. It was a great journey. I went to the Himalayas. There was one lab in deep South India to the National Oceanography Institute. And I started meeting these scientists and they would all tell me the same story. So I started building a deep fraternal relationship. And I must, out of those, whatever, uh, 4,500 scientists, at least half of them love me. So... I came back to the, you know, after realizing that these guys weren't going to do anything. And during this time, something interesting occurred. I think um, the director general, Samir Brahmachari, that was his name, who reports up to the prime minister, was under 
investigation for embezzlement. He used to be one of the lab directors. Remember, there's 37 labs. Okay. Typically, you become a director general for coming from one of the labs. And it turns out that that lab that he was running took federal money and sent it to a public-private partnership company, which you're allowed to set up. But that company was owned by Soros, George Soros and Chatterjee, which really? is an Indian guy, Soros Chatterjee <laughs> Group. And $35 million was missing. So he was under... Uh, investigation. And what was the company? What did they do? They did. They were going to do genomics okay. research. It was one of the gene labs. Okay. So this investigation is, you know, really starting. And suddenly in the building I'm in in central Delhi, at an office on the third floor, half of the building, I'm, uh, I had left at, I think, 6 p.m. I got a call from one of the other lab directors saying, Shiva, are you out of the office? I go, yeah. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, half of the building just burned down. Who dies in that fire? Wait, so the building your, your office was in? Yes. It burned down. Half of it. And this is a, like right after you leave. Well, I left for home. Yeah. Right? Yeah. To just go home to have dinner. But uh, it turns out the part of the building that burned down had all the audit accounting information. For and the lab. For all, for, the for all of CSIR. <laughs> and, and What a coincidence. Yeah. And one of the people who dies was a bookkeeper. Okay. We, so we see in cases like this, like right. in other countries. Right? Yeah. right. So I'm looking at all this and I realize they're not going to let me really do anything. So I have a decision to make. Keep my mouth shut, which is what my father-in-law is saying, because he just wants his daughter to have a nice big bungalow and be prestigious and say, oh, our son is an MIT guy. This is India has a lot of status conscious, right? Yeah. Or um, do something. Automatically, you knew something was fishy, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So on October 19th, which is known as Diwali in India... 2009. What was Diwali? Diwali is the most important Indian festival. Okay. Like India has these religious... It's when the great warrior Rama, thousands of years ago, the story goes, slayed Ravana, the evil king. It's when uh, uh, truth prevails over darkness. So it, it was just coincidental. I'm, like I'm getting... Like I've been there now six months. Like I could just... Uh, people may call me impatient, but I'm not... Like you could see the writing on the wall. Like, I, I, I was starting to go to work and just sit there and look at the wall. So anyway, and the director general had told me, you know, why don't you put your ideas on paper? So I said, okay. So I, I didn't sleep for three days. I put all my ideas in a report, which I call CSIR Tech, The Path Forward. And um, me and Deepak wrote it. You know, I stayed at his, his home. My wife at that time was getting really upset that I was even going to raise hell. Her parents think I'm crazy. So you were going to raise hell... Um, by writing a report. A report, right. right. So I write a report, and... Um, were, were any of the documents um, that they burned down from the audit, um, was that like very like significant documents? Were you going to use some of that? Or well, like no, that? no. I, I was going to write my observations about what I observed, the fact that there's a lot of scientists, Do they think that they that? weren't getting support, that the lab directors... We're basically in it for themselves. And then I was at a meeting where the Minister of Science attended at an offsite. And they had hired a uh, they had hired a Australian consulting firm who lectured them in closed room that this entire organization had bad DNA and they should fix it. And we also had his PowerPoint. So I put that PowerPoint in my 37 page uh, analysis. The report's all online. If people go to innovationdemandsfreedom.com and I... Uh, uh, put it into a very good report. And I said, look, here's my analysis. Not only did I give the critiques, but I also said, here are the ways for every criticism I had a solution. And I said, let's have an open discussion on this. 
and it was a draft report and I sent it uh, to all the scientists because I wanted to create this bottoms up model. Let the scientists give their ideas. You had all the emails of all the scientists. Yeah, you're yeah I actually position. went to the director general secretary and I said, can I have the, and he, and he gave it to me because I'm a senior enough official because in India they just jump when someone on top says jump, they jump. Yeah. So what was the uh, report? What was the main thesis? Like what was it mainly? The thesis was that we. Overspending or. No, no. The thesis was even much more historical and foundational. I was saying that India never got independence, that that what you saw was a feudal organization. So you went back to politics. You didn't even, I went back. To, I said, this know. is a feudal organization. It's run by a bunch of 37 little kingdoms. <laughs> and these kings don't do anything because they just want to protect their serfs. The serfs were these scientists. They didn't want them innovating. Because if one of them innovated, he may get a promotion. He, it's the old king model, you know, in the old courts. Yeah. The brother king is afraid of the other brother because he's going to stab him in the back and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. what this was. And I said, India needs to overcome this feudalism. And I pointed out just the way the director general ran stuff. Um, and I gave solutions. And anyway, um, this report um, got released to the press. Okay. And it appeared on the front page of Hindustan Times. If you go to the website, Innovation Demands Freedom, it says, Front page. Now, this is like the New York Times of India. Is that what you thought was going to happen? Did you want it to go I public? Did, well, I, I, want, I sent it to the scientists. Yeah. And then it went public. Okay. And, well, the, the instant I sent out the email, three hours later, my email was cut off. I was escorted out of my office. Wow. And then the next day, this big article hits all over India. Were you expecting all this to happen? You I was like, expe- I, I, I didn't expect it to happen so fast, right? In three hours. Yeah, three hours. Yeah. And I have, you know, and um, then I get a call. So they came to your office and they were like, you're Escort. done? You're, did they give you a reason? Or? No, they just, they, no, they just walked me out, okay? So I, I left uh, to my home, right? My home's nearby. And then I get a call from P.M. Bhargava. P.M. Bhargava is a scientist who started one of the labs of CSIR called the Center for Cellular and Molecular Biology, which actually did good work. They were the only lab. These guys were serious scientists. Okay. And Bhargava is still one of India's most leading biologists. And he called me up and he said, anything I can do to help, I'm here. And he's, I think at that time he was in his late 70s. Um, he got the press involved. So my story just ballooned after that. Then I got so it was like, oh, man gets fired for uh, writing a report. That yeah, yeah. I mean, it went like everywhere. I mean, um, New York Times contacted me. Heather Timmons of the New York Times, who was a bureau chief in, 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 in uh, and she called me and we had at a coffee house and she said, Shiva, you should be afraid. Do you know who you're dealing with? These guys are mafia. So it went worldwide quickly. Worldwide, yeah. And she, and well, anyway, she's doing an article. So did you spoke, spoke to her on the phone? Or no, no, she, she was in Delhi. She was a bureau chief for India. So you you had a meeting, you met up with her, and she was tell, pretty. She much told me, and she, she said, "You may." She goes, "If you need, life. you can come to my home and stay with us," because she goes, "These guys are deadly." Because what you've done is, because remember, thirty-five million dollars. I've exposed that all the stuff, right? Thirty-five million dollars of, of embezzlement. Of embezzlement, right? Okay. Um, then some of the leading science reporters got involved, right? And they wrote an article in Nature. Uh, call, you know, uh, report uh, Rao results in uh, uh, ousting a top Indian scientist. Okay. So, so were you scared? Or? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. I got very scared because I'm in this bungalow in a walled off area. with They own all of this. And I remember I had a young boy who was my caretaker. I had him sleep and stay with me outside my door because I didn't know what the hell was going to happen. 
They because, gave you your car, everything. Exactly. Yeah. Everything is from them. So I felt almost like a prisoner. Yeah. And um, news is out there. Then I decided I was going to go visit the prime minister's house. So how long is this from the time you released the report? This is like days. days I mean, okay. everything is happening so fast. Yeah, okay. Right? October 19th. Um, so 20th, 20th. I mean. I, so you're probably thinking I'm probably going to need to go back to America soon. Well, I wanted to fight. Oh, you wanted yeah, to so say I wanted to fight. fight. Now my okay. father-in-law... And my mother-in-law are really upset, right? Because they are part of the Indian bureaucracy, remember, right? He had a job with him. So they're getting like, what is your son-in-law doing? You know, look, you know, like. Is your wife upset as well? Uh, she was. She, she actually think, really, really didn't know what to think. I yeah. mean, she's not political. So she was supportive to the extent, you know, this is my husband, like the Indian model. Yeah. So um, her father, by the way, was one of the most powerful people in India at one time. He was the head of all the civil servants of India. He was chairman of what's called UP. Imagine every civil servant in America reporting to one person. That was him. The story goes he was one time t taking a train, I think from somewhere to Delhi, and he needed to get to Delhi on time, and he called the railway minister, and they sped up his train. That's the kind of power he had. Yeah. But he was a very interesting guy in the sense when he retired, he didn't take one penny. He was not a corrupt guy. He went to a small little two-bedroom government home. So was he retired when uh, you were talking? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he had just retired. Do you think he was, uh, well, you, you said he was warning you or telling you not to do any of this stuff. Right. right. So do you think he was maybe telling some other people inside the government what you were doing? He was actually to? leaking me information too. Oh, okay. Like basically he wanted to protect me from getting killed. So you don't think he was? Well, he was doing both, oh, right? He, was he had to protect both. his face. Among yeah. all these other people, your son-in-law is behaving like this. And, and then obviously I'm his son-in-law, right? So he has some connection to me, you yeah. know? So uh, so, so he I, did care about you. In a I way. think he, he had was, to. Yeah, yeah, he had to. But so, so he was ca caught between a rock and a hard place. So, yeah. um, so as all of this is occurring, you know, I got invited uh, to do a, a news story with India's number one, Star News is India's number one network, which reaches probably 60 million people. So they called me up and they said, Dr. Idri, we'd like to do an interview with you live. Live. Oh right? <laughs> and they had it. And this was outside. They were going to do it. with. And right as I'm going to do the interview, reporter says, oh, we got a call from CSIR saying, if you do this, they're going to throw you in jail. <laughs> and so all I can remember, I'm looking at the cameras. I have to you know, sit down and do this interview. And all I could, and I, and I, I called the U.S. Embassy. So I called him and I said, Just to confirm this? Well, I, I, I didn't know what oh, to go. Oh, I'm a yeah, U.S. Yeah, citizen, yeah, right? Yeah. So I called, I said, Should I come over there? They go, Yeah, you should get over here right now. Do the interview at the embassy. No, 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 no. Don't do the interview because oh, okay. you could get thrown in jail and you don't want to be in an Indian jail. So then all I could think about was my poor grandparents, that how much they had suffered. And what kind of person would I be if I didn't do anything? Everyone says, Oh, once when I achieve this state, then I'm going to blah, 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 right? Yeah, and I was yeah. <laughs> yeah, and most people don't. So I didn't want to sell out. So I did the interview. So you would, how long did you have to make this eight uh, minutes decision? Eight minutes. Well, no, no, I had like thirty seconds to make thirty this. seconds. Yeah. they're like they're telling you you're going to get arrested. They just yeah. called us. So what is it? Are you gonna right? Do so it I now? ended up doing the interview. Okay, and it goes prime time India all over. Like I think eight p.m. So everyone sees it. Um, what, what, so you were just like, you just said, fuck it, I'm doing the interview. Yeah, I'm doing the interview. So I did the interview. You didn't have, did you have any small hesitations or? No, I just thought about my grandparents. Yeah. Like at a certain point you cross this threshold, you overcome all fear. Yeah. It's right. almost like okay. a freedom. Yeah. 
Like you say, what the hell is life if you can't t- tell the truth? So you just felt a complete, like, amount of, like, immense freedom. Probably. Freedom and total fearlessness. You, yeah. you, it's not even fearless. You just feel, like, free. Yeah. I, I can't explain it. It was total freedom. Knowing that all this could occur, and all I could think about was what all these other people have no voice. Freedom or security, right? Everyone right. And I have this chance to share something which is so systemic. And if I don't do it, what kind of person am I, right? There and, might be a and risk all, on my life, but I'm, either, I'm well, yeah. like exposing something huge and I'm helping. Well, not only that, I had, look, I, I, I had gotten four degrees from MIT. I started companies. I fulfilled everything that my grandparents wanted me to fulfill, right? Yeah. What, what more, you know what I mean? Everything's icing on the cake. So I did that. And the interview went viral. And then the next day, I believe, my father-in-law told my wife that they're going to come get you. So you just went back home after no, the interview, no, or did you go to the embassy? No, 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 no. I didn't go to the embassy. Oh, no, okay. I went somewhere else because I had a friend of mine, you know. So you, went, a, you were in hiding. Yes. Um, and then I met my wife at a coffee shop, and all I had was my passport, none of my clothes, my and a backpack. So I, hold on. After the interview, you pretty much did you go back home and take no, no. Some I went stuff? somewhere else. You went, you went straight to someone else. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, and I all and I had my passport. Do you think you were getting followed? Were yeah, you, yeah, that's all those things I was concerned about, were right? Were you driving yourself? No, right? my friend was helping me because oh, I, I didn't trust any of their cars, nothing. I got, yeah, I got you. Um, in fact, the day before that, I had gone to the prime minister's house at 7 Racecourse Road. And I called him and I said, I want to meet with you. And when I went to his house, um, I look up and I'm, they had me in the waiting room and you could see all the cameras looking at me. There's a picture I look, and I see a picture of the Minister of Science and Technology, Prithviraj Chavan, that was his name. And in the picture, he's sitting next to Sonia Gandhi. Sonia Gandhi is the mother of Rahul Gandhi, who's running for prime minister now. He's an idiot, co- cokehead. Um, and her husband was Rajiv Gandhi, who was a former prime minister, whose mother was Indira Gandhi, who was a prime minister, whose father was Nehru. You see, there was a lineage. It was a monarchy that yeah. they'd had, a dynasty. And he is sitting next to her, and, the, and, and Prithviraj Chavan is a minister of science who um, also had to sign off on my appointment. And I remember something interesting occurred uh, three months before this. I was visiting one of the labs of India, and uh, one chief minister, a governor of India, had suddenly died in a mysterious helicopter crash. <laughs> and Prithviraj Chavan and the law minister, I think like the attorney general of India, I was uh, at one of the labs and they came because they were coming to that place because on their route to go to the helicopter accident. Well, both of them sat right across from me. It's just four of us. The head of the lab was the National Institute of Aeronautics, me, and these two guys um, eating lunch. And I got to tell you, if you think about Darth Vader, the energy from those two people was like evil. Yeah. And I, not that I would have doubt if that helicopter accident was was not pulled off, right? Because he was opposition. But Prithviraj Chavan ended up later, I think about many years after that incident, ended up becoming the chief minister of Maharashtra, which is where Bombay is, the biggest city of India. Oh, yeah. And there was a journalist who was exposing corruption in Maharashtra and suddenly gets shot on his motorcycle, daylight. And because he was going to expose Prithviraj Chavan. These are the kind of people I was with. Yeah. Mafia, man. Yeah. You're talking about 
the elite of the elite of India, you know? So, yeah, so I was... These are the people you were around all the time then? As the, These are the people that were my direct bosses. Yeah. Okay? And you could see at that level that what ran them was money, 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 and power. But so, um, so getting back after I did that interview, I met my wife in a coffee shop and she told me that uh, her father said that they were going to arrest me. So what I did was I literally left and I said, I'm leaving. And I got a third class. In India, they have first class train, second class train, th third class is where all the poorest people travel. First class, you get a beautiful cart, you know. So I took a, that's the only ticket I could get. And I looked on the map and I said, where do I go? Uh, a good friend of mine, my attorney, John Bradley, uh, who's always gotten me out of all, I call him on my little flip phone. And John said, look, you have to go to the border of Nepal. And he goes, he knew someone who could meet me there. And he said, that's the way to get out of India because they don't have electronic passport checking. In, in that place only? In that border. In that border. Yeah. In that border, where if you look at Nepal or where India are, okay? So I took a train. I just jumped on a train with nothing, 36-hour train ride. And, you know, the people I was with were the poorest people with fishermen and, you know, just... Do you think anyone was after you, following you? Going, I don't know, but I took. Well, I did it quickly. I think they didn't expect it. Yeah. So I took the train all, and, and John said, when you get to the border, you'll have to cross this bridge. Because a friend of him that he knew was giving, tell, and I'm on this train, you know, talking to John with this little flip phone, <laughs> my battery about to die, right? <laughs> and I didn't know where I was going, man. And John just knew someone in Nepal that yeah, could help yes, you out. John, <laughs> John, so John, John is an attorney. John's pretty well connected. Yeah. So. So I go all the way, 36 hours, you know, without sleep, sitting up. Because you're worried that you're yeah. just like watching. Or it, I don't know who's coming time. in, right? Oh in a train. Well, you were, the, a bunch, you're with a bunch of other people, right? You said. And, it's all yeah, locals. All, yeah. All locals, you know, <laughs> like chickens and stuff like this, right? So I go. What was your mindset at that time? Like, what, what were you I'm thinking? just trying to figure out how I'm going to get out. I, I'm, imagine you're you just, going yeah. to like. You're just, yeah. It's something out of like a, a movie, paranoid, man. Yeah. Well, not only paranoid, but I don't know where I'm going. Like, there's no maps. I'm just going to some train stop, and then I'm supposed to get out at that train stop. And cross a bridge. Then go over, show my passport, cross, and I get into Kathmandu, to Nepal. And then I have to take a plane to Kathmandu. And then from Kathmandu, I have to buy tickets to get to the United States. Okay? And what are the chances of people at the border knowing who you are? Exactly. So, But John had told me a border cross to go where they have no electronics so you know, it's all done with paper so they that. couldn't connect anything yeah. so anyway i go there uh i i had to go to a place i had to get passport pictures right because you had to file out these forms i cross the border remember this is pretty wild because i've never it's not like you're going to the boston embassy and it's all nice fluorescent lights you're yeah. going i i cross this long bridge over and i'm looking you know so i finally make it to the other side then there are all these Military so officers. Walked, oh, you walked to the other side. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And then I had to give my, that's the checkpoint. And luckily nothing happened. And then I had to, and I had to, all I, I was, oh, I had cash. I had to pay for cash. You're probably super worried at that moment, right? When they're right. looking at your passport exactly. and everything. You're like, you're, yeah, I'm wondering if they're going to, if they're going to stop me. Exactly. This so, is like a locked up abroad moment that, like the Nat Geo show, but I <laughs> keep going. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I, um, so I make it through that point, and now I have to 
um, uh, get tickets to go to Kathmandu. Okay. So you're already in Nepal then. I'm in Nepal on the border. Okay. So um, I go to like a travel agent, like they have these little agencies, right? And I show my passport because I have to go to Kathmandu, Qatar. And the guy says, oh, hold on. I see something here. So I just grab my, because he's on an electronic system, right? Oh, he is. Okay. So I grab my passport and my, and I had my American Express card and I just leave because I didn't know what the hell he was seeing. I immediately went to someone else who did it the old way, you know, with paper. And, it, and he gave me a ticket. And then Wait, I, so you left everything? Well, no, I left that travel agent. Oh, right? and because then you went to another travel I agent. I went to another, because he was on, an, you know, like your yeah. super duper electronic system, which is probably a mistake. So I went to another guy who did it with paper, you know, like they have the directories, they make phone oh, okay. calls, yeah. which is better. And then he let you in. He, well, he gave me a ticket. Yeah. And then um, from there, I took, it was a very, one of those crickety propeller planes. And um, I take that plane um, to Kathmandu. And Kathmandu is, where is this? This is in Nepal. Okay. So I'm at a border town. I got to go to Kathmandu, the capital. And from there, I have to get flights back to the U.S., right? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because I'm flying to the right of me. I see the Himalayas. It's pretty wild. I mean, the Himalayas are 33,000 feet. This, this plane's flying at maybe 12,000, right? <laughs> and in fact, I see, I think, Mount Kailash, which is known as the abode of Shiva. The story goes Shiva lives. Whoa, that's crazy. Right? And then I uh, land in Kathmandu. And um, then... I'm still concerned because I have to now... Because Nepal could be talking with India right. and somehow sent you back, right? Yeah. Exactly. So I have to now go from Kathmandu. Um, my flight was to Qatar, Qatar Airlines. And from Qatar, uh, I flew to um, London. And then from London to Boston. It was a long flight. So remember, I haven't slept all this time. So once you're in London, you're probably like... I'm pretty sick, yeah. yeah and sure. I land in Boston. And I, I ended up coming back home, I believe, on... November, um, I think November 11th, you know, this, so it started on October 19th. This was almost a 2009, November 2009. Yeah. Um, so I land probably relieved landing. Back. Well, it was interesting. I'd land, I walk into my house, I turn on the computer and there's an email from the editor of nature India. Cause all this news is everywhere now. I mean, there must've been like 50 news stories about this all over India. I'd become like a national Sensation. Do they know you were back in, uh, in the Well, US she didn't or? know where I was, okay. right? Because I, so I, I, um, this woman says, oh, I'm the editor of Nature India. And you have to understand what nature is. Nature is the most prestigious science magazine in the world. Okay. So they have an editorial division and they had the editor of Nature India, like Nature as Nature US. And they said, Dr. Idri, we would like you to write a commentary. We've been watching this organization for 70 years and we don't understand why innovation ever comes out of it, the corruption. Would you write an article? And it's it's a huge prestige to write in nature, you know? Yeah. Like Nobel Prize scientists get, get to write in there. So I write an article and I submitted it to them. It was called Innovation Demands Freedom, Why America Innovates in India May Never. They removed the subtitle. They had editorial rights and they publish it. So I'm happy, you know, this gets published. Within 36 hours of it being published, and in that article that I wrote, remember, this goes out to the entire scientific community of the world. I talk about, hey, this is why I went to India. This is what I observed, right? Yeah. 
And I'm willing to have an open forum. If people think I'm like the Indian government saying I was greedy, like I wanted money, that's why. I mean, like they were just they were they were going they were trolling me on blogs. Yeah. So anyway, so I said, look, I'm willing to have an open forum. Let's bring all the cameras and I'll lay out the evidence. Let them meet. That's how my article ended. The editor and 36 hours after that, my article in Nature India disappears. Turns out the editor in India, she called me up. She was freaking out. She goes, Shiva, I got to pull down your article. I go, why? She goes, the prime minister of India's office threatened me. So the article disappears. Luckily, I'd saved a copy. Yeah. Um, because nature is owned by the British. And UK libel laws are much more in favor of the establishment. So you have to have all the evidence before you can assert anything. Okay, and I was asserting they were corrupt. I had all the evidence. Yeah. But, you know, they used that against her. You could get thrown in jail. This is criminal. But she basically freaked out and the article was taken down, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I, in some ways, you know, I stuck my neck out in India um, and also for this thing. And, and some, uh, the point is that, uh, but by the way, one of the things is I didn't mention was I was getting hundreds of emails <coughs> from the scientists thanking me. But they're all afraid because remember, these people have their jobs or their livelihood. Yeah. Their families. So they're so afraid they to say anything. They were that. so thankful that I had done this. Um, and shortly thereafter, by the way, the other thing with the New York Times report I didn't mention was, you know, when I was speaking to her, she wrote an article. And um, this was before the big interview I did on national news. When I did that interview with her, um, she was very supportive of me because she'd seen so much corruption. As I mentioned, she said, you know, you can come stay with my husband and I because we were concerned about you, me. Um, so she goes to interview the director general, the corrupt guy, Samir Brahmachari. Okay. And he tells her in the interview, if you write this article, I will have you fired. So which, so she had to put hold on her article, had to go to the Asia bureau head, and she had to tone down the article. Like the title was going to be a big expose. So she changed the title to something like... Some, some Indians find it tough to go home again. It looks like, like a personal story. But she ends the article stabbing the director general. She said, and, and, and the director general told me if I wrote this article, he would have me fired. <laughs> right? So that went all. So when I land in the U.S., my advisors at MIT are calling because this is in the New York Times. Like I think it was in, in a major feature section. Okay, yeah. So I go back to MIT. You know, so I, I'd, I'd left to go to my Fulbright. I'm back. And everyone at MIT knew my... Um, activist work yeah and these guys were old timers who knew me and so um, the head of the department said Shiva you know you did the right thing you know um, I had old professors who I used to fight against you know or administrators they were actually supportive of me yeah well I remember you said last episode you also worked with Noam Chomsky in a paper on the caste system exactly and I went to in fact right after this I went to see Noam Okay, and he was I told Noam, as well. and Noam said, do you need me to write a letter on your behalf? Wow. He was very supportive. Um, he said that, you know, many, many years ago, he, in the 70s, he was in touch with the Prime Minister of India, and after the Prime Minister of India called a national emergency, like dictatorial rule, he cut off all relations with her. With, with him? With, with her, uh, Indira Gandhi. Uh, so, uh, and so that was 2010, and uh, MIT... Uh, Doug Laufenberger was the head of the MIT Department of Biological Engineering, which was my PhD, gave me a lectureship. He said, because uh, I had come back to India not only with this story, but the fact that I made this discovery, integrating Eastern and Western medicine. Yeah. And I said, Doug, let me try to um, 
I think I can teach a course, a lecture course here. And he let me do that, which became one of the very popular course. Then he ended up giving me a full lectureship. And, you know, we'll talk about this in another episode. So basically, I'd gone through this whole journey and I felt I felt like I'd done what my grandparents wanted me to, to do, Marcelo. Yeah. You know? In many ways, I felt fulfilled because I didn't pussy out and sell out. You know, I did the right thing. Yeah. And I um, imagine how you would have felt if you didn't do the interview, right? Yeah. Or, or I think I did everything. In, in many ways, I think my mission was to, because what ended up happening was, that guy, Samir Brahmachari, he, two years later, he retired. And in India, when you retire, you get a massive pension. He was later implicated for embezzlement. And he was never given his pension, I found out recently, <laughs> which never occurs. So my thing, still people say, wow, CSIR, you know? And then another group of lawyers many years later didn't believe this happened. They thought I was just making this up. They went <laughs> and did a FOIA equivalent. And then the story came out even more. Okay. But... The story didn't come out fully until around 2013, 14, when I, the Prime Minister of India called me back to India to honor me as the inventor of email. So you there, were able to go back to India then? Yeah, yeah. This was much later, about three years later. And um, when I was there, an Indian reporter, and, and I, I was doing a talk, and I said, oh, yeah, and no, it's unfortunate. Uh, I, I was giving the story of the invention of email at, at this Indian event, and I was saying, you know, what was great about what occurred in Newark, New Jersey, was that um, innovation in America could take place in Newark because I, as a young kid, wasn't treated as a low-caste Indian. I wasn't treated different. Dr. Michelson treated me as an equal. He wasn't jealous of me like those lab directors at CSIR. Yeah. And he let me get the credit for what I did. And that's where email came from, in that fostered environment. I said, far in contrast to these um, scientists in India who have a lot of infrastructure, but they don't get that same respect. And so, uh, and then a reporter said, what do you mean? I said, yeah, I said, I was kicked out of India. And this was Arnab Goswami, who's India's like leading talk show host, where he has like, I don't wanna say Jerry Springer, but he has like major things, like yeah. he does a new show. Um, so he says, we gotta do a story. And I was going back uh, uh, to India, I mean, to the United States, you know, I'd done this talk. And uh, Fran Drescher and I, at that time, I was married to Fran. Fran and I, uh, uh, I was supposed to meet her in Mexico uh, for a vacation, long due vacation. So I meet her there and I get this call. They want me to do the show. So I literally, while I was in the Yucatan in Mexico, in the middle of my vacation, I had to fly all the way to Mexico City and I had to do this interview in, I think it was 2014. Okay. And finally, the whole story came out to all the Indian audience. A lot of Indians didn't know I had to leave That's under the undercover you know, uh, cover of night and that whole story. Um, and we exposed, um, you know, the Gandhis, everyone. Ar Arnab gave me a good forum. Um, was but, there a bigger pushback after? Like any threats from the government after? No, that? no, no, because Modi was in power. Okay. The current prime minister of India who's not from that dynasty. But you got to understand, during that period, 2010 to 12, 12 is when the news came out that I was the inventor of email when my stuff went into the Smithsonian. And it was fascinating, the irony of this whole journey is that you realize that when the story came out that I invented email and it went into the Smithsonian, you see the same caste-like system yeah. of the liberal elites in America who do it in a much more sophisticated way yeah. than the open torture that people do in India, just suppressing people. They couldn't withstand the fact that a 14-year-old uh, Indian kid in Newark invented email. 
not in the military, not at MIT, and you could see the attack. they And it was no different. The attack I endured in India and the fight there in some ways prepared me like a warrior to fight the really, really uh, elitists in America, yeah. the academic elites who try to control where innovation comes from. So in, in many ways, the journey uh, uh, has come full circle because... You know, the whole basis of innovation is it's, exp- it's allowing every human being to express their God-given right to create. What was abusive about the caste system was it was said only these people are smart. Only these people could create. You guys are sudras, you know, like the N-word equivalent. Yeah. Well, my parents rose above that, right? I invented email as a kid. I go back to India to give back to help these other innovators express themselves. And you find out the Indian corruption doesn't want that to happen. But the real big irony is as I come back to India in 2012 and the story comes out that I invented email, how the American elites behave. Yeah. So whether, at least in India, the corruption is open, people know. But the invention of email is me as an inventor scientist fighting for that 14-year-old kid who invented email. No different than me before. In fact, it was easier for me to fight, I've mentioned this before, for all those 4,000 scientists in India. But when I had to stand up for that 14-year-old kid, which was me, uh, that was even a tougher thing. Yeah. Um, but I think the Indian journey prepared me for that. It almost said, okay, you fought for these other people. Why don't you fight for yourself? Completely different thing. A completely different journey. Yeah. But what you, what you realize is that the Indian suppression of innovation came from the British industrial complex, which tried to, and the caste industrial complex of India. It was, yeah. like, it was like a storm of those two things the american suppression of innovation comes from the collusion of the military industrial academic complex but so i think i've gone through this whole journey uh and it's made me a tough fighter you know that's why you know when i look at when i ran for u.s senate um all of this stuff um i think it it uh, sort of strengthened me to take on attacks when they'd attack me right yeah you know people put a mug shot that i beat somebody up when it was false lie uh, when they call you names. And I think this strengthens you at a deep level, emotionally. Yeah. So I, I, in many ways, I'm very fortunate to have gone through the fight in India, you know, which is was essentially, you know, you could be killed. To, in many ways, the Indian system just kills you. The American system tries to kill you through character assassination. Yeah. And that's what Gawker, and that's what these academics try to do to me. When I shared the truth about the invention of email, they try to make me a non-person me a fraud and I, and I had to fight back them fighting Gawker and then fighting you know this company Tector through legal means yeah and I think the advantage we have in America that's unique is we have a little bit more freedom which we is a lot we right about it right which and yeah we sh- which we should exercise yeah fully and uh um in India you know you have less that's why there's a lot more oppressed people there I would say there's a direct correlation between innovation and freedom the more freedom, the more innovation. That's why the website says innovation demands freedom. In many ways, I think that's what we can call this podcast. Yeah. Innovation demands freedom. The more freedom, the more innovation you get. Yep. The less freedom, less innovation. And I bet you on a chart, uh, I know. I think on uh, I was seeing a chart up on the internet once. They had the le- relative de- democracy of different countries. I bet you if you did on one axis the if you rated the democracy of a country and another axis you drew innovation and i think that curve would go up you know it would be a linear curve you know the the greater the freedom 
the more innovation, you know, as looked at by citations and patents. And in fact, I think I, I was working on a paper on this. Yeah. Well, Dr. Michelson gave me immense freedom. But he also said I was responsible. I had to be a kid. I had to show up, etc. But in that small room in C630, in Medical Science Building in Newark, in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, I was given a lot of freedom, a lot of responsibility, and email came out of that. Here in India, where scientists are given no freedom, right? That's why they have five, two percent of their patents are legitimate, right? Everyone's doing weird stuff. Um, and in America, I think what it comes to is um, when it comes to innovation. We have to recognize that there is constraint, constraining of innovation because we only say certain people can be free to innovate. You go out of MIT and you hang out in the Kendall Square area or you're in Silicon Valley, you know, a couple centers of innovation. They call it innovation hubs. And the reality is, as I mentioned this before, is innovation is actually a weed. Yeah. And it should be, it should just, it's innovation comes from solving problems. And collaboration. And collaboration, well. yeah. et cetera. Um, and that's what CSIR was originally set up for, to solve India's problems, not to go build robots to put someone on the moon, but to solve water problems, filtration problems, and all these. And that's really the uh, unfortunate thing with India, that there's a lot of smart people there. Um, uh, and one interesting statistic is this. Do you know how many Nobel Prize scientists India has generated within India? Um Yes. Maybe I would say, I don't know, hundreds or? Zero. Zero, okay. Prior to, this is even gets more hilarious, not hilarious, but disturbing, is prior to Indian quote-unquote independence, prior to 1947, India produced, two Indians got Nobel Prizes under British rule. During colonial rule, two, Brit- two Indian scientists got Nobel Prizes, Raman and a guy called Bose. After so-called Indian independence, no Indian within Indian scientists has won a Nobel Prize. Indians have to leave India. Wow. So I'll give you an example. Harind, uh, Hari Gobind Karana. Uh, very smart guy. Biologist. He couldn't even get a job as a lecturer in India, which is like the lowest level in academia because they were so jealous of him. Yeah. But he comes to America, ends up at MIT, and he wins a Nobel Prize in medicine. Another guy, Chandrasekhar, who won the Nobel Prize in physics. My point is, these a society like India is feudal run. And that's what my fight was against feudalism, which is the origin of the caste system, which is what we started about, what Marx was talking about. The feudal system is fundamentally the caste system. You're in, a, you're in this level and you will do this job. for the. You're a carpenter, you will do that job. That's yeah. from feudalism. You're a... Blacksmith, you will do that job, and your son will do that job. You're a coconut picker from India, which is what my great grandparents and everyone is supposed to do that. But they broke all those traditions. Yeah. So I, I think ultimately, um, you know, when you look at it right now, you know, my run for U.S. Senate really wants to address that issue. That yeah, you have freedom in America, but it's not unleashed everywhere. It's controlled freedom, freedom for a few, it's not an, for everyone. It's an illusion as well. Well, right? you have well, you have it. Quote unquote, better. You have like pockets I, yeah. of freedom in America. In India, it's sort of all, I mean, they have those variations, but openly, you know, there's corruption. But here, we have pockets of lots of freedom, right? And then devastation of that elsewhere. So if you look in Massachusetts, you know, they'll say, oh, this is, the state is doing so well, but it's really east of 495 in the Cambridge 
between the mile between Harvard and MIT. Yeah. You don't, you know, they, they, they don't take care of Worcester or Springfield or, you know, all those areas are, are left to sort of devastation. Yeah, they push them out, gentrification. Right, yeah. right. And they don't really drive innovation there. So anyway, I, I hope that gives you an idea what happened in India and, and the key lessons there. Yeah. Great. Thank you.